This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. March has arrived, Hardwood Knox listeners, and we are only weeks away from the big tournament. Yes, that tournament. Make sure to head to betonline.ag and open an account today to get in on their $100,000 bracket March Madness Contest, starting March 15th. That's right. I said $100,000 and March 15th. You don't need to be hardcore to get in on the action. And with multiple entries available, it's this season's best chance to cash in. And remember, the NBA and XFL are still going strong. So whatever your passion is, BetOnline is the place to be for all your betting needs. Visit our good friends and exclusive partner, BetOnline, to take advantage of the best bonuses in the business. Sign up for a free account and make sure to use that promo code Blue wire, all one word for your 50% sign up bonus. BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. Hello, and what it do, Hardwood Knox listeners. I am Dan Pavalli coming at you this time without my co host. Andrew D. Bailey, do have one of our Fast Five mailbag specialties for for you coming up in just a second as soon as we get through these housekeeping notes. First, foremost, as always, please, 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 please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. That is the best way that you can help out this podcast and show support aside from also using our sponsors, as you just heard from the fantastic betonline.ag. Just search Hardwood Knox on iTunes, throw us a five-star rating, subscribe, please download all our episodes we're putting out basically three a week for you right now um, and definitely uh, leave reviews we're, we're reading them all the time and we take any constructive criticism that you have to heart if you are listening to us on another medium well do the iTunes thing anyway but also subscribe to us there rate review whatever they'll allow you to do there we should be ubiquitous and everywhere you can follow our YouTube channel as well. That also helps us out a ton. Subscribe there. Go to YouTube.com. Search Hardwood Knox. We'll be, we'll be up there, and you can subscribe, like all of our videos. That's much appreciated. And please follow Hardwood Knox on Twitter. I know we're asking a lot, but at Hardwood Knox there as well. We appreciate it. You guys are awesome. All the support that you show. If you've done all those things and continue to do all those things, we do appreciate the shout-outs on Twitter. Uh, retweet any promos that Andy and I can throw out there. That helps get the word out. You can also just straight-up refer us by word of mouth to friends, family members, acquaintances, people you work with, random people on the street. Steal phones and subscribe them to the Hardwood Knox podcast. They will thank you later. All right, let's get to this week's edition of Fast Five, where hopefully in an expedited fashion, I will hit five things that I think you need to know entering this week in the NBA. First up, the Giannis Antetokounmpo and James Harden beef. It all kind of starts, going to nutshell it here, with Giannis Antetokounmpo not drafting James Harden uh, in the All-Star game this year because he wanted someone who can pass. He goes with Kemba Walker instead. Then James Harden sort of responds, um, telling Rachel Nichols, 
I wish that I was a seven footer who could just dunk and sort of throw shots at Giannis as someone who's not very skilled. Giannis Tentacupo responded by saying, my game is not just about power. It should also be noted that over the offseason, James Harden gave an interview where it was not unprompted, but when he was asked about it, he was he was talking about how the media helped contribute to Giannis Tentacupo winning MVP by starting an early season narrative that he could not really recover from. Oof! I mean... I don't really think that you need to have a strong opinion on this. I do think we NBA Twitter has this habit of just dragging James Harden whenever they can because Giannis Tentacumpo is the more likable personality right now or just the more popular player right now. Uh, maybe that's something that can be toned down, but give me all the pettiness. I'm absolutely here for this. They play again on March 25th. Uh, maybe Harden or Tentacumpo will be on rest that night just because we don't know what the playoff pitcher will look like. The Bucks will certainly have the number one seeds shown up by them. I still just want to see it. I sort of love this tension between superstars. I don't think it needs it. I'm fine with LeBron James being friends with everybody. Never going to criticize that. But give me the petty beef. You know, we don't. I don't need to see this real ingrained, entrenched hatred. And maybe that's there between Giannis and James Harden. But this is all just awesome, petty stuff. I love it. Sign me up for more of it. Let's keep an eye out to see if there's anything more between Giannis and Harden moving forward. Item number two here on Fast Five, somewhat interesting, Steve Kerr, uh, this is per Anthony Slater of The Athletic, was talking about the importance of Stephen Curry needing to play this year, coming back from his broken hand, so that he could essentially experience life without the security blankets that he's enjoyed over the past few years, talking about Kevin Durant uh, and Clay Thompson. He obviously won't have those this year. I really do like Steve Kerr. I stand with him on a lot of his uh, political and societal opinions. I've appreciated his willingness to speak out on on most issues. His backstory is incredible. I thought he was a terrific color analyst when he was with Turner Sports. That being said, and also I will recognize that you know maybe he was trying to explain something else, and this was just sort of word vomit here. And that was a nutshell, a summary of the full quote. It was not the full quote, but there's always seemed to be this weird devaluing of Stephen Curry from within the Warriors organization, whether it was constantly, or not constantly, but on multiple occasions referring to Kevin Durant as the best player in the world. Uh, There was from Marcus Thompson, I believe, of The Athletic, when Stephen Curry was in free agency, there was talk that the Warriors didn't necessarily want to give him a max contract. This is coming up after he had played on one of the what ended up being one of the biggest deals in NBA history, that four-year, $44 million deal. It's not that he accepted a discount. He was you had ankle problems, so there was a gamble there, if you remember the perception of that deal back in the day. Still, just a wild take when you look at what Stephen Curry had, had done for the Warriors to that point and will still continue to do with the Warriors. And then something like this. I, I don't understand it. Is Stephen Curry really just underappreciated by his own organization? Andy Liu from the Light Years podcast, also a member of the Blue Wire podcast network, he thought, I had what he thought was a He had what I thought, excuse me, was a terrific thread on this. And you can check it out on Twitter. He is at Andy K-H-L-I-U. Just about how Stephen Curry's success and the Warriors' success overall has people within Golden State's organization feeling like they're more important and better than they are. If this is the perception of Stephen Curry, then I absolutely have to agree, assuming that this is the perception internally. I, I if you look um, at just Stephen Curry's impact on those around him, you see it both in the numbers and as- aesthetically when he's on the floor. He just bends defenses in a different way. The Warriors suck at three-point shooting 
this year. They would be so much better off if Stephen Curry's gravity is on the court. Uh, my co-host Andy Bailey does these terrific player impact charts as well on Twitter from time to time, and he did one for Stephen Curry's five-year peak back in late January. And you just look at the net ratings of players when they're with Stephen Curry um, compared to when they're without him, and the difference is always just monstrous. The smallest net rating differential over this five-year peak was Clay Thompson's 12.2 net rating differential. So his net rating swung, the team's net rating swung, it's not his own, uh, 12.2 points in the right direction when Stephen Curry was on the floor, and that is the lowest net rating swing of the Warriors' main pieces during this time. There are guys like David Lee, Murray Spates on there, Zaza Pachulia, Ian Clark, all those dudes, David West. Now, it's also just important to note, when you sort of look at the lineups during Kevin Durant's time with the Warriors, when he played without Stephen Curry compared to when the uh, compared to when Stephen Curry played without him, the Warriors were better in the latter scenario. And so I don't necessarily understand this weird public underappreciation of Steph. Is it because he's such a low-maintenance superstar? Do the Warriors really believe that his production is, is sort of conditional? Uh, is this all just, again, a big misunderstanding because Steve Kerr was tripping over his words publicly? I have zero idea, but it was just really weird, and that's just something uncomfortable to say, particularly post-KD, where you don't have to worry about massaging his ego or trying to keep him with the team. This would be the time to appreciate Stephen Curry more than ever, and so once he returns from that broken hand, which he will do soon, maybe he'll sort of put this to bed internally, but he really shouldn't have to because of what he's done over the half past half decade. Plus, just weird. Uh, whatever, though. Item number three. That was not so fast, but item number three will hopefully be faster. Um, the USA Today's Jeff, Jeff Zilgit wrote about the Sixers this past weekend, and he sort of dropped within his piece that there's a strong chance the Sixers will look at moving Al Horford over the summer. Uh, this is directly from the piece. He wrote, though the Sixers did not try to move Horford at the trade deadline, that might be a possibility in the offseason. If they can send that contract to another team and get shooting in return, a person with knowledge of the situation told USA Today Sports. That is a goal. It's certainly a goal. Uh, to have to do that after you gave him um, this massive four-year deal and you've seen it kind of blow up in your face, that's not a great look. Horford is owed three years and $81 million, uh, $76.5 million guaranteed. That final year is partially guaranteed, but it's, it's huge. It's $14.5 million is guaranteed right off the bat of it. So it's not a nothing commitment. To have to walk that back over the offseason, I just don't know which teams would look at taking him on and viewing him as an asset. He is, you know, he's dealt with some Achilles issues this year, and maybe that contributes to his shooting, but he's missed a ton of wide open threes, shooting under 27% from beyond the arc when Joel Embiid's on the court. He turns 34 in June. Who's really going to look at him? I've, I've seen a buddy healed for Al Horford. Uh, deal structured out there. The Kings need more than that. I know that they're about to pay Bogdanovich and they have De'Aaron Fox on the roster. They have Harrison Barnes. They have Marvin Bagley. There's a lot of offensive talent there. I don't think you're getting Buddy Heald as uneasy as his own extension uh, this this past fall that he signed could make you. You're not getting him uh, with Al Horford alone. You're going to need to include something else in there. And I just really struggle to see other good fits. He might be interesting on a team like the Pelicans where they don't want to commit fully to playing Zion Williamson at the five. They also have Jackson Hayes and they don't really need to saddle themselves with this type of contract when they're about to pay Brandon Ingram. And then Lonzo Ball is going to come up uh, in restricted free agency next summer if he doesn't sign an extension this offseason. 
just going through all these different teams, I, I don't know what you look at. It'd be cool to see Al Horford on the Spurs. They could maybe build something around Patty Mills. But again, that involves essentially treating uh, Al Horford as this asset, which he certainly isn't on the contract. I don't know that he's someone they need to attach a sweetener to. Uh, maybe one of the few teams with cap space is prepared to sort of just take him in. That could happen, but you're looking at those teams, you know, whether it's a Charlotte, uh, the New York Knicks, the Atlanta Hawks, you know, Atlanta's set uh, with bigs already uh, having Capella and then assuming they keep John Collins. And then just these other teams that are projected to have cap space, they're not on the same timeline that uh, Horford's age would infer there. So I don't know that the Sixers would be able to readily move him and, and certainly not for this net positive in, in return. Item number four, this is less of an official thing and just more of something that I've observed on NBA Twitter over the past few days. There seems to be this mounting call for LeBron James to get more MVP consideration, and people are pushing back against the notion that Giannis has just turned this into a a one-man race. I'm going to provide some pushback to that pushback. LeBron James is having a spectacular year, but people are getting to the point where they want to penalize Giannis Antetokounmpo for being on a good team. And you look at how bad the Lakers are without LeBron James on the court versus how good they are. I think that's an imperfect way to look at this. And there's definitely a problem in the sense that there's no specific criteria for the way that MVP is chosen. So I think you could look at it as who's the most irreplaceable player in the NBA to their team within that exact context. LeBron is, in theory, more irreplaceable to the Lakers because they fared so poorly without him, where the Bucks have a positive point differential without Giannis Antetokounmpo. That being said, the Lakers' net rating improves by over 12 points per 100 possessions when LeBron James is on the court. So they go from bad to ridiculously good. The Bucks' net rating, they have a positive one without Giannis Antetokounmpo, and it still improves by 12-plus points per 100 possessions also with him on the court. So he's taking them from let's say, really good to indomitable. And that's a harder leap to make, in my opinion, than taking what is a bad team um, to respectability. And thats I don't want to water down what LeBron is doing, but I, I also don't want to dilute Giannis's own case because he has the, the deeper supporting cast right now. And this is a regular season awards. So I don't think you can look at the playoff concerns people have at, for the Bucks as this valid criticism either. And let's not use LeBron James's age. Okay, it's his age 35 season, but this isn't, you know, is there an, an oldie award? That that would be just a separate category. So I don't understand this all of a sudden push to say that he's going to challenge Giannis Antetokounmpo. LeBron James is the second most valuable player in the NBA right now. Just when you look at what Giannis Antetokounmpo has been able to do in Milwaukee and how much he elevates what would be, in theory, a pretty good team without him. I don't I, I don't think Giannis is going to end up being a unanimous selection for this reason, but to try and really chop down his case because LeBron is has a less talented supporting cast, it's just it's wild to me. I think you could just argue in a vacuum, it shouldn't it be LeBron that is less replaceable because you have another top seven superstar in Anthony Davis. Like that's the on-off numbers don't support that, but just because the Bucks can run Chris Middleton uh, heavy, uh, Chris Middleton solo lineups without Giannis and be a net plus, that takes away from Giannis Antetokounmpo's MVP case. Uh, there, there's just so much that goes into it, and so I understand the context of looking at net rating swings, but when these two players have similar net rating swings and one is actually improving upon a really good one to begin with. 
I just feel like that's the harder jump to make. Our item number five, probably a smaller note, but Jordan McRae waived by the Denver Nuggets, expected to be picked up by the Phoenix Suns. I like this move for Phoenix. Uh, They need someone who could be semi-dynamic on the offensive end with the ball in his hands, particularly now that Kelly Oubre Jr. might be done for the season. Uh, They are in the 70th percentile of offensive rating when Devin Booker is on the court. They're in the 6th percentile when he is off the court, and they're in the 1st percentile of offensive rating when Rubio is on the court without Devin Booker. And so those are the limitations of Ricky Rubio is he's not going to give you much of this perimeter scoring off the dribble. And Phoenix really needs someone else like that aside from Devin Booker. Uh, Ricky Rubio is second on the team in pull-up jump shot attempts per game. And Kelly Oubre Jr. is third. And so now you've lost him. Tyler Johnson was fourth. He's already gone. Just bringing in McCray, he's hit about 34% of his pull-up threes this season. I don't think he makes this major difference, but he definitely fills a need for Phoenix. And so I, I think that will be an interesting piece for them. And he's someone for them to monitor moving forward. They also should have his early bird rights, assuming that they're going to get him on waiters and that could uh, on waivers, not the on waiters, excuse me. That could be valuable if they're looking to keep him after this season. Let's dive into this mailbag now, though. Going to try and be brief here and get to around seven or, or eight questions. Uh, this one sort of steps on one of the items that we just covered. I should have weaved it into there, but Twitter user Kobe Forever at Ban Dudley, who would win in a boxing match between Giannis and Harden? That's a good question. I feel like Giannis's length would serve him really well there, but James Harden's pretty strong. I don't know how quick he would be with a set of boxing gloves on, and I'm, I'm not saying that Giannis Antetokounmpo is, is really weak, but that might be a more dead-even matchup than we would expect. Uh, I think I might lean a little bit towards Harden. Maybe he could generate more power from a standstill position, whereas Giannis might need sort of this running start? I, I honestly don't know, but I could see it also being Antetokounmpo as well. That's a fun question to consider. Uh, again, maybe we'll, we'll see it come to that when they face each other on March 25th. Next question comes from Kevin R. at AKOS8989. Why does Frank Vogel hate Alex Caruso? I don't know if he hates Alex Caruso. Some people on social media certainly do because they think he's getting too much attention, and it does seem like Major brand accounts do sort of treat him as this borderline all-star when it comes to uh, the amount of content that they're pumping out with regards to him. However, th- there needs to be more Alex Caruso in Los Angeles, and it, basically it should come at the expense of Rondo's minutes. I think the thought process there, though, is that the Lakers need more ball handling when LeBron is off the court, which does make sense. I just don't know that Rondo is that guy. Um the Lakers are in the 53rd percentile on offense when LeBron is without when LeBron isn't on the court. Um they're in the 67th percentile when Rondo is on the court without LeBron. However, that drops to the 49th percentile when Rondo is playing with Anthony Davis and LeBron is on the bench. By comparison, when Caruso and Anthony Davis play without LeBron, the Lakers are in the 57th percentile of offensive offensive efficiency. Some of those minutes do, however, come with Rondo. Ironically, though, where the Lakers have struggled most, at least statistically, is defensively when LeBron's off the court. And Alex Caruso is going to give you more of a consistent effort there. He's also um, just going to be a more aggressive finisher at the rim. I think it's been pretty clear when you look at some of the games he's had, he should be getting those, I don't want to say backup playmaker minutes, because yes, maybe you will lose some things there um, between Caruso and Rondo. But certainly when you're looking at closing lineup options, 
um, the personnel around LeBron James. Crusoe deserves to get more consideration than he has in the macro this season. There have been games where he's gotten some some serious minutes and, and where he's played down the stretch. That's another thing to monitor with the Lakers as they try and hash out their supporting cast rotation. I, I think Alex Caruso could stand to play in an even bigger role, and bigger role, and maybe if the Lakers end up signing another ball handler, perhaps they already have Deion Waiters by the time that you're listening to this, does that empower them to play Alex Caruso more and then cut Rondo's minutes and then try a little bit of more of Deion, Deion Waiters in that scenario? I honestly do not know, but Alex Caruso could definitely stand to, to play more in Los Angeles. Twitter user Ed Holiday handle at Ed Holiday. Will Kevin Knox ever live up to his potential? I think that depends on what you believe Kevin Knox's potential to be. Is he someone that can handle the ball a little bit as a secondary just shot creator for himself while hitting threes, really getting out in transition? I, I think he could get there. I don't know if it'll be on the Knicks. They've really sort of not only decreased his minutes this year, but diminish the number of um, touches that he's having when you just look at average possession time, um, who's going to control the ball more in the half court. And maybe that's the best route for Kevin Knox is that he never should have profiled as this primary scorer. Now that you have RJ Barrett and there are a ton of other guys on the roster like Julius Randle who are going to hold the ball, it makes sense to develop him as a more of a complimentary piece. He does need to play better defense to stay on the floor to make a stronger case for it. I did think he was making a lot better reads off the ball at the beginning of the year. Those have since seemed to fall by the wayside, uh, but he still seems like he could be a firecracker in transition. He's only in his second year. I tend to throw um, defensive struggles and a lack of efficiency out the window. The fact that his shooting percentages have really declined this season. Yes, it's a little bit of a red flag, but how much of that is about feel not having the luxury of rhythm because he's playing so many minutes less compared to last year as a rookie. The Knicks definitely need to give him a longer leash moving forward. I will say that much. And if they don't, if they're unwilling to, depending on how they view themselves this summer when they could have a ton of cap space and might want to sign some some veterans, he becomes this quintessential second draft guy where if you put him on another team that's willing to give him that longer rope and is going to put him in a better position to succeed by maybe actually playing him beside um, these above average primary ball handlers. I do think that he can turn into this just nice three point shooter who can provide the secondary scoring off the bounce, really get out in transition, maybe runs a a good amount of pick and rolls. And then hopefully he'll be able to stay on the floor defensively because he has the size and the physical tools for the position could end up being a pretty good rebounder. If you give him some time and maybe the Knicks are the team where he turns into the player that he's supposed to be. If R.J. Barrett continues to get a better feel in the half court, that just becomes a more intriguing pairing between those two. And I think we've actually kind of seen that, at least from R.J. Barrett himself, uh, coming out of the All-Star break. He's just been, over the past few games, a lot better, looks a lot more confident on offense. Next question comes from Derek Zwick. Hopefully I did not butcher that pronunciation. At Derek Z-W-I-C-K, can the Raptors win another title this year? That's kind of a loaded question. I tilt toward yes, because what it comes down to for me, how likely are you to win the title is more about how likely are you to come out of your conference? Because once you get out of there, you've done essentially half the battle. I don't think the Raptors would be favored against the Lakers or the Clippers, maybe not even the Nuggets if they played them, maybe not even the Rockets. But the fact that I think they have a clear path to getting there, the Bucks are the distinct one seed in the East. And regardless of what you think about their past two playoff performances, regardless of what you think about how they've capitalized on a weaker conference, they have been just obscenely good this year. 
And I don't think that any team in the East should be favored over them in the course of a best of seven series. I do think the Raptors, though, have the best chance of anyone to beat them. I'm out on Philadelphia. I'm just out. Uh, the injuries to Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, they'll probably be healthy or hopefully be healthy by the playoffs. But this team just hasn't gotten enough reps at full strength. They haven't proven that they can cobble together a consistent offense at full strength. Um, their bench is just all sorts of weird. Maybe Shake Milton sort of provides them with that uh, supporting cast punch that they've kind of lacked, but it still just doesn't change how light they are on the combination of ball handling and shooting around Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. They're not built to optimize those two players together, and that's going to make running a rotation super difficult in the playoffs, particularly if you view Al Horford as someone you have to play, not just throughout the game, even if he's coming off the bench, but in crunch time. And that, then I just immediately turn to the Raptors. Maybe it's the Celtics. Some people might argue the Heat. I'm just not uh, there for either of those two. The Raptors can play just a, a bunch of different defensive coverages. They can go big or small. We've seen where they've played Abaka, Boucher, and Siakam at the same time this season. They also have that wild card in, in Marcus All. He won't be as valuable in some lineups against the Bucks, but um, he's also just a smart defender, even if he's going to get pulled down to the paint by Brooke Lopez. You definitely wouldn't want to have him in lineups when Giannis Antetokounmpo is at the five. I think he could probably be okay if Marvin Williams is on the court, though, in those scenarios. They are a team that I could see upending the Bucks four times in seven tries. I'm not saying it would be likely, uh, but the fact that they can, I think, speaks to them being an actual title contender. And there are, you know, if you want to view this as it's the Clippers, the Lakers, the Bucks, and everyone else, that's fine. The Raptors belong in that immediate next year to me with the Rockets, the Nuggets, um, the Celtics, if you want to throw the Sixers in there. There are so many teams that can talk themselves into winning a title this year if everything goes right. And in the Raptors' case, I think fewer things need to break in their favor uh, than it does for many other teams. Just having good health, Marcus All healthy and back from his hamstring injury, uh, having him available with Kyle Lowry and Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Fleet at the same time would, would go a long way. Next question comes from Andre, Andre Bobrick at DRE. B-O-B-0. What are the qualifications that make someone elite? This is definitely a, a wildly open-ended question. For me, it comes down to, if we want to paint it with the same brush, can player X be the second best player on a legitimate title contender, or if you just want to say championship team? I think that's what makes them elite. And so you, I would turn to Chris Middleton as an example this year. I think it's become clear that he can be the number two on a championship team, and that would put him in uh, at the elite level. I don't know if you want to call him a superstar. Um, that's probably reserved for what would be the top 15 players in the game. At least it, it probably should be. I don't think he's quite at that level. He might make an all-NBA team this year, but what's helped pave the way for that, aside from his play, is that you have guys like Kevin Durant and, and Paul George who have either been injured or, and not very available, or in Durant's case, available at all. Jason Tatum's another good example here, and it, it I think it sort of extends the conversation. I might also look at Ken this a player carry his team on his own or be the hub of an offense because defense is important. Um, and if you have someone who can play both ends of the floor, like a Tatum and Middleton, that's huge, but offense is going to be good defense every time. And I, well, most of the time. And so can this player uh, be someone who is the number one option on offense for long stretches? And Jason Tatum has made that sort of leap this year where the numbers where his point guard was off the court over his first two seasons, they just weren't very good. This year, though, when he plays without Kemba Walker, the Celtics are outscoring opponents by 9.5 points per 100 possessions, and they rank in the 57th percentile of offensive efficiency. I would call someone like him elite. Not, you know, I don't think he's at the top 10 player level just yet, but he's someone who can get there. Overall, though, because the NBA has such a 
expansive uh, list of, I think, stars. They probably hand that designation out more, I don't want to say recklessly, but more commonly uh, than most other sports. And I think it's because there are so many recognizable names. If you want to be in the elite category, you have to be in that at least second level of superstar where... Can you be a top 25 player, I'll say, in any given season? And for someone like Chris Middleton, I think that's a wholehearted yes. And then Jason Tatum is now on that path where it looks like he could be a top 10, maybe one of the five best players in the NBA. And so that's what I think it means to, to really be elite. Can you be uh, at a number two on a legitimate title team? Or if you want to change it up a little bit because maybe the team's not necessarily good or, or it's just too early in, in their career, you're not sure of the team's timeline that they're on. Are they someone that can run the offense on their own or be the team's identity on their own for long long periods of time? Rudy Gobert could fall into that category. Not so much lately because it seems like he cares a little bit less on defense. Maybe I'll throw that one to Andy. He definitely watches the Jazz more than I do. Uh, but th- that's that's something. Do, can you form, be, be the, the hub of an identity, either on your own or, or stand out among um, other players who might be considered better or more important on your team. So Middleton and Tatum are those two examples of players who I think have transitioned into that territory this season. Next question comes from Trill Clinton at Derek underscore got Lou. Uh, his question is, when does Dar- Garpax get fired? Oh, excuse me. And the handle here is at Derek underscore got loud. Uh, that was cut off when I, when I wrote it. I do not know why. When does Gar Pax get fired in Chicago? He's, of course, talking about Gar Foreman and John Paxson with the Bulls. Uh, the Bulls, per reports over the All-Star weekend, were interviewing guys uh, for high-profile front office positions, so you would think that the end of Gar Pax might be nigh. They're not going to get fired, though. This is a team that's probably just going to keep them on the payroll in some capacity, You know, pull a Knicks where Steve Mills is no longer the team president, but he remains with, with them in just some role. I could see that for... Gar Foreman and John Paxson. And I think, you know, when you look at it, uh, John Paxson's sort of already in that role for for Chicago, where he's just not as front-facing for the organization as a a Gar Foreman. And so I I don't know if they'll both actually get fired, but I do think this is the offseason in which we see some front office change for them. I'm just not sure how stark that it will ultimately be. This is going to be our final question. It comes from Raul Clement. At R A U L C L E M E N T one, he wants to know the numbers on Zion Williamson and Lonzo Ball. the the exact The exact question here uh, a little bit long, but but let me read it to you guys anyway, so you have the full picture of what I'm working off of. Do you have any numbers for on have any numbers on Zion Lonzo lineups? Also, what will Lonzo command on his next contract? Lastly, is Ingram Zion working? Seems like they are only good at the same time in one of every three games or so. Let's hit the last question first. Statistically, Ingram and Zion are just working. They've been blowing opponents off the court with the two of them on the floor. I do think there's probably a hot and cold aspect to the way that they could play because Brandon Ingram is someone who who needs the ball, but I think he's proven that he can hit enough of his catch-and-shoot jumpers and that uh, the two-man game with him and Zion is at least there. There's a blueprint to it working when you look at how many baskets he's assisted on for Zion Williamson. It's going to work even if it doesn't look always, uh, if it, even if it doesn't look always pretty while while it's happening or they go through their their rough patches. The Zion Lonzo numbers, I, I think, are just more fairly interesting when you look at how much of a non-threat Lonzo is to score sometimes 
and the fact that you probably need to stagger their minutes with Ingram and Zion in comparison because you don't want all three of them on the court at the same time for too long. That being said, in 724 possessions this year with Zion and Lonzo on the floor, the Pelicans are plus 15 points per 100 possessions, uh, 73rd percentile of offensive efficiency, 99th percentile of defensive efficiency. About half of these possessions, too, have come with uh, Ingram also on the floor, where they're absolutely just steamrolling opponents. And the question for what Lonzo's going to get paid in his next deal, it'll probably depend on whether he hits restricted free agency or signs an extension this summer. And I don't want to cop out here, but I really honestly don't know. He perked up right before Zion came. He's had some hot and cold shooting nights since, but he's having overall a good year. Uh, His jumper, it just looks like he's more decisive with it, shooting 36.1% from three. Uh, He's also only shooting 44.9% on twos. Isn't someone who's going to get you to the foul line very much, can still be too passive. His finishing around the rim is close to a career-high level, if not there, but he's just still not um, reliable there. If he's going to take, uh, his shot profile has gotten a lot better. If he's going to take some in-between shots, can you count on him to develop a float or anything like that? But as someone who can really control the pace of the game and get out in transition, not just after getting defensive rebounds, but after inbounding the ball. Uh, There was a play the other night in the Pelicans' loss to the Lakers where uh, Los Angeles scored and the Pelicans inbounded the ball to Lonzo, and he just beat everyone down the floor on the Lakers' defense. So he can make plays like that. I don't think you're ever going to count on him to be ultra-aggressive. There will always be perhaps some turnover issues with him because of the flair that he'll, uh, or should we put the English that he puts on his passes. But I I think that he's a quality NBA player, and what he can do positionally, uh, defensively, uh, that's huge as well. He's going to be someone who could break up plays off the ball. He's going to provide excellent shot blocking for for someone at the guard position, and he's really going to get his hands uh, in there and knows how to use his length when he's on the ball. And just to combine that with what he can do on the defensive glass, I know rebounding has sort of become this hot-button topic of whether it, it's overrated or not. It probably is, but at the guard possession or the wing uh, at the guard position or the wing positions, I think it can really help a, a great deal just to get you into your offense quicker. And so I think that's what he does. And there are probably certain teams that can afford to house him and the way that he plays more than most. The Pelicans look like they're going to be one of them with just the comfort level that Zion is finishing uh, on plays that aren't even necessarily designed for him and just scoring within the flow of the offense. That's going to allow Lonzo to have the ball in his hands. Ingram is uh, hit enough of his catch-and-shoot threes where those two can work together, but then you're also not relying on Lonzo to be your primary scorer because you have a guy like Brandon Ingram. And then Drew Holiday and J.J. Redick, when healthy, they can help in that same same capacity. I don't know what he's going to get paid, though, and the Pelicans might have to let it ride into restricted free agency if he's going to demand close to top dollar in negotiations. If you can get him between 12 and $16 million on an extension per year, that's probably something I consider this summer. But if he's going to want more than that, you just let it ride in, into restricted free agency. That's kind of where I land on him. That'll do it here. Thanks for another fun mailbag and Fast Five, guys. I, I hope you enjoyed it, as usual, in these solo podcasts, stumbling over my words as I as I transition. But thanks for bearing with me. These are always sort of fun to, to ramble on about. Please just keep in mind what we what I specifically let you know at the top. Uh, subscribe, rate, review to review us on iTunes. Definitely download all our episodes. Recommend us to friends and family members. Follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. Uh, the Blue Wire Podcast Network is at Blue Wire Pods. Follow Andy at Andrew D Bailey. You can follow me if you'd like at Dan Favalli F A V A L E. That'll do it for now. Until next time, though, I leave you with a shout out to both Ben Udre and Kyle Anderson.
Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.